Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Rye. And I'm... Oh, my God. <laughs> my brain. You forgot his fucking name. We're all... Everyone go home. <laughs> and I... And I'm your other host, Chris. <sighs> If you're just if you're just tuning in, that was that was a really great that was a really great Just Fidel impersonation. That was great, Chris. Is that you impersonating the movie we're talking about today, or is that you in your natural state of tired? It might be both. It's I both. just had I just had the worst brain fart ever. Oh, I forgot it was really your bad. name. God I, damn it! It was really bad. I didn't have any migraines, but wow, my brain just literally blank. Okay, hi. <laughs> if you didn't, <laughs> wow. If you've been uh, here before, can you tell him what his name is? Your name is Chris. Yeah. We live in 2020. Unfortunately, COVID is still real. I'm not going to tell you who the president is. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, if you didn't watch the movies, we were we uh, were reviewing today. Uh, that intro bit completely went over your head. So pause the movie. or Pause the podcast. <laughs> pause the podcast. Wow, I'm a hot mess right now. Pause the podcast and then uh, press play and then you'll be in the know. So Rai, what are we reviewing today we are talking about the wait <laughs> fuck <laughs> i was <laughs> that's contagious Can i we... was i was trying to think of something clever to say and then i, I forgot no, the don't the me. we're so tired we're so oh tired now it's terrible hi okay we're talking about we're talking about maniac i'm not gonna think of anything clever we're fucking talking about maniac from night, we're talking about both actually. So we're talking about Maniac from 1980 and the remake from 2012. And I've seen both of these before. Again, this should shock no one. Um, and I'm assuming Chris hasn't seen either. I hadn't seen either or just one of them. No, but I was very pleasantly surprised with with both of these films. Like I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of them for different reasons. So I'm very excited to talk about uh, the movies today. I have to admit. It's relief. It's relieving to me that you enjoyed them because I knew exactly what we were getting into, and I was like, okay, it's a the 1980 the 1980 version was one of a kind. It wasn't the first, but it was one of a kind. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I think Peeping Tom is like the first one. Is the was the very first movie done from the killer's perspective? Um, yeah. But this certainly wasn't the first, but it is one of a kind because it does draw from that. Yeah. So try tapping to your reservoirs of cinematic trivia and, <laughs> and uh, you know, just expertise. Is this one of the earliest slasher movies? Because like I because I, I, arguably like, you know, I, I, you know, the 80s were a huge boon for classic slasher movies like, you know, you know, it's Halloween. Halloween's almost upon us. You know, Jar Carpenter's Halloween is one of the most famous slashers of all time. Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, Friday also the Thirteenth. Um, so I, w- 
because because when I was watching this film, like this, this was made in 1980, and obviously I think there was probably, you know, slasher archetypes before this, probably. I mean, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I just felt I, I felt like Maniac with its. I mean, it was it was a very low budget movie, but um, it just had this type of approach uh, in terms of like the tone and um, this the type of salt of the earth grit that comes with you know you you have like. You're working on a shoestring budget. You have like one hundred dollars in your budget, so you're trying to stretch it, and you have to make shortcuts, or you have to, or another way, you make creative choices. You know, because you know you got to work with what you got. And I felt like Maniac was like an early crystallization for a what, uh, for a, for what you see a lot in late, much later slasher horror. Um, you know, like the POV. Um, segments, the, um, like the, I guess like the unstoppable, almost supernatural prowess and constitution of the killer. Like, you know, he, he's been like shot with everything. He's been cut in the arm with the shovel and he's still up and around and moving. Um, and also with the, with like the, creativity of the kills and obviously like you take it with a great assault whether you're for it against it but i mean there's a lot of like uh voyeurism exploitation um which is kind of like a hallmark especially for like the um these uh early or is is, is, it's like a hallmark you see a lot in slasher movies so i was just very curious because like uh i don't know where this movie takes place in the timeline of like slashers but i felt like this was like an early progenitor to like a lot of the other more popular ones well okay so you're you're sort of half right so in terms of the american slasher movie uh this was definitely one of the first but um before that because this sort of like set off american slashers now much like way prior to this you have hammer films starting from the 1930s where they start getting into gore and blood and horror around 19 i want to say 1958 with dracula if i'm if i'm correct um i mean they uh yeah so around i'm not gonna say 1958 but around like the 1950s is when hammer films which is uh across the pond in britain starts to dive into all of that and hammer films is actually the like hammer films in general have been around since like the 1930s and that's sort of their whole genre is this psychological thriller horror thing and they get bloodier as the years do go on and then in the 70s you have uh italian directors like argento and bava who create the most gory beautiful movies you've ever seen and we they're on the docket for us like i have an entire like we're gonna do bava and argento like that some of the most well-known movies from those directors like back to back to back so we're gonna get there um but in terms of american films yeah slash that maniac is one of the beginnings of the american slasher genre um people people often forget that um there was a whole, like, a whole segment of, of 
really sort of um, violent and bloody movies far before what we had. It's just that, you know, these became a little bit more popular a little bit more quickly. And it was really the start of violence and blood and like real like hardcore gore was really where it was, you know. When we when we come down to Suspiria, then you'll see what I'm talking. Like Suspiria is, mwah, like Chef's Kiss of beautiful, horrifying, bloody imagery. Thank you, Argento. Interesting. Okay, cool. So we have like a primer. We have a backdrop for uh, the cultural landscape leading up into uh, Maniac. Before Maniac. I think the, the, the movie that was really the first of its kind was Peeping Tom, and that was from 1960. And that was a guy who brutally kills women and then captures their dying faces on camera. Like, that's how he gets off. So that was a shocking movie for the time. And then, you know, 20 years later, you have something like Maniac, which does things from the killer's perspective but in a different way he's not capturing anything on film he you're you're going through the entire journey from start to finish with him and what also made it sort of legendary was the special effects um they're all practical and thanks to the amazingly talented tom savini sort of paved the way for all of this and i watched so many interviews, and I actually rewatched his documentary, Smoke and Mirrors, that's on Shudder, about his life and, and about him in the industry and stuff like that, to sort of um, hear him talk about it in his own words. And he, he, he just made it sound so easy. He was so nonchalant about talking about the effects, and, and, and we'll get into that later. I, I have, like, I watched so much stuff on the, on the practical effects used for both films, um, to compare and contrast and, and stuff like that. And um, I do have opinions about the, the guy that did <laughs> the special effects makeup for 2012, but that's we'll get to that later. Cool. So before before we deep dive, um, let's give a brief synopsis for anyone who's listening this far in and hasn't watched the movies yet. A traumatic childhood leads a deranged mama's boy on a gruesome killing spree on the streets of New York City. Great. Um, yeah, so let's start with the OG. Let's start with the 1980 version. And I'll say that the synopsis for the 2012 one does differ. Um, so before we talk about the 2012 one, I'll read the synopsis for that. But yeah. So this was your first time watching Maniac, right? Yeah, uh, both versions. So I have to admit, as much as it delights me that you enjoyed both of these, I was nervous about watching these because even though... I think especially in a time of remakes where a lot of originality is sort of being overlooked, I like that we can go back and watch movies like this, like this and like funny games. And eventually we're going to get to Suspiria where you got to see what how it was done before and what remakes decide to do with it. I do enjoy pitting remakes up against each other. That being said, my concern... <laughs> was that this was another serial killer. And after we saw Chris's reaction to the Poughkeepsie tapes, I was a little worried because this was worse than the Poughkeepsie tapes in terms of the brutal violence. You know, it's... See, what, what, like, 
triggers my brain. It's like really inconsistent. Because this was super violent in comparison to Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie Tapes was unnerving and creepy and uncomfortable to watch. This was people getting scalped. So, so right, like, I'm going to throw that, that psychoanalyst out the window because okay. both, both, like, both maniacs, both maniacs I thoroughly enjoyed, um, especially, I, I don't know, well, we'll get to it in, like, in a minute or two. But I don't know what's your vibe or your gut check on the 2012 version. Um, I adore the 2012 version. Uh, I'm not saying that I liked it more than the 1980 version. I'm, uh, like I said in the top of the episode, I like them for different reasons. I think it's unfair to compare them to each other, even though they're like the same story. Uh, and one's a remake, and then. Um, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed both of them, um, uh, and I appreciate the 1980 version because, uh, yeah, yes, there's like a lot of heady, problematic stuff it touches on, um, like voyeurism or misogyny, uh, and just like um, you know. I, especially both films both films like this is uh universal um i couldn't help but like check my own privilege of like of all the things i take take for granted for being a guy being being uh you know especially in american society and you know these two films like really highlight how terrifying it is to be um you know a lady um you know always have to be on guard always have to be defensive because it's, it's this is why we travel in packs exactly or like or, <laughs> like, or, or yeah because it's it's like a, it's literal like when you when you see this movie or when you see both of these movies as like um a i guess like a pseudo documentary analysis or deep dive into the internal workings of someone who's like mentally and emotionally troubled uh, but also a very capable predator, uh, and you know, and seeing you're, you're the dark, you're the like the passenger uh, on uh, with Frank Zito in both versions, and you know, you we we see all this violence and all this voyeurism and all these uh, really intense emotion and catharsis directed towards these women and. Um, um, you know, in 2020, you know, this is a problem that we still haven't solved and and it's really relevant. And so watching the, watching the film from that perspective is like, wow, this is, um, I feel like the terror not only spans from like, obviously like the amazing, uh, practical effects from both films, um, especially for the 1980, like a lot of this, a lot of the practical effects here were really novel for the time especially when i first came in i all i knew about this movie was it was made in the 1980s so it was pretty early uh bef- uh in um i guess like the slasher american culture uh so i appreciate a, a lot of the work they did like uh savini did incredible uh but terrifying gruesome stuff um but then like the other horror is like how real uh it uh felt uh, uh, whether it's because um, 
you know, some of these murders mirrored real life murders, like the Son of Sam mur- murders, especially the the one where he murdered the couple in the car uh, with 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 like a shotgun. It, it ve- it's very very reminiscent of like this uh, one of the Son of Sam murders. Um, but it's also terrifying because um, Frank Zito's not just like a mass killer. Um, yes, there's there's something really scary when like uh, like a seven foot tall behemoth like Michael Myers just chases you relentlessly. But uh, the horror with Frank, it's like it's a more villain next door, villain under the flesh kind of thing. Where I mean, this I mean, it, it's with a grain of salt. Yes, the, men- the mentally ill and unhealthy are often pigeonholed, often stereotyped into uh, incredibly violent killers in the movie like these. I mean, that's that's a trope. Um, it's problematic. It creates a lot of misunderstanding um, in viewing people who live with schizophrenia uh, or any or bipolar disorder or any other type of, of mental disorder where um, they, they, they live with it they learn to live with it, they learn to cope with it, and they're not violent. But that being said, I mean, violence and mental illness do ha- it does happen. Um, and that down-to-earth, or not down-to-earth, I guess that, very, that grounded sort of, sort of reality is uh, just encapsulated to one character uh, made it for like a really thrilling and compelling and horrifying experience. And... Um, I don't know. I it's weird. It's weird when you when you mention the Poughkeepsie tapes. Like, I guess it's been it's been what like I don't know like a year since we've done that almost. And um, obviously I haven't watched it since then. But I honestly, from what I remember from I feel like Poughkeepsie tapes was worse than Maniac because I just had a great time watching both of them. So I don't know. I don't know what that says about my brain. It's like really inconsistent, but I really didn't have any substantial problems. Like I guess, um, I guess my main concerns, or you know, that's a term I would use lightly, but it just kept my brain moving because I was my liberal arts brain was thinking all about stuff about Freudian psychology and like sociology and and like all these social issues related to women that we still face today and. Uh, I mean, so yes, it, it it portrayed all those themes in like a really grisly matter, but it kept me engaged. It kept me entertained. It kept, kept my mind like just working and I never lost attention once. Like, again, I've said this so many times before, one of the biggest sins that movie could do is, is just to be boring or not engaging. I was like in rapt attention. For both of these films, like th- th- these move, these movies were like ninety minutes, so they're kind of short, or they're kind of like average length to begin with. But these movies f- passed by really quickly for me because I was just enjoying them so much. So I try very hard, and it's difficult. But as I've gotten older, I try really hard to still enjoy horror movies as they are and as they were made without looking at them through the lens of the way we live now because horror has always been an escape for me it's always been a way for me to quell my anxiety and um 
de-stress and, and calm down. I've said this a, a bunch of times that there's definitely something wrong with, with my brain because for me, if I've had a really bad day, nothing calms me down more than watching Scream. And Scream is is a slasher movie unto itself, and that's a whole other thing. And I'll And I'm not talking like I'll sit there and watch the first one. I will sit there and watch all four of them because it's there's something about the comedy balancing out with the horror and the writing and there's just something and because the first one was so revolutionary there's something about it that's just very uh uh calming for me and the same thing goes with like most most if not all horror too i find just watching like a good slasher movie just like super soothing but that's you know me and I tr because I've enjoyed them so much over the course of my life, I try really hard to watch them as they are and not to look at them that way because I, I still want to be able to enjoy them. Not that that would make it less enjoyable, but to a degree, if you, you know, look at it the way a quote-unquote normal person would, it kind of ruins it for me. <laughs> but that being said, I think it's important to acknowledge, like you did, Chris, that... These horror movies, these are the arguments that people had for, against horror movies like being made, like the way they portray women and the way that everything goes down in these films. And I think that it's also really important to highlight that while we're having these conversations, like we can enjoy them and talk about it. But I do think that it is important, especially now, while violence against women and not just women, women of color, trans women, trans women of color. While all that violence is still happening, it's still important. It, because of all of that, it's important to talk, to highlight and talk about. That being said, I still enjoy the absolute shit out of Maniac every time. Every time. And I have nothing, and this is shocking, I think, for some people to hear, because we hear how much I shit all over remakes, but... The Maniac remake, in my opinion, is one of the most successful horror movie remakes that I've seen. And I think it has to do, I think it has to do with the small changes they made, the actor they picked. Even something as minute as the fact that they stuck very close to the original um, time of the movie. So I think the first one is 87 minutes long and the 2012 version is 89 minutes long. There's just something about sticking to the very general format of the movie. I 100% agree. And they really didn't change too much. They updated it in a smart way for 2012. Now, I think if they did it now, it would be it probably wouldn't translate and it wouldn't go over well. Um because as I as I humorously said cuz some of my humor is self-deprecating and comes from a place of truth, uh women travel in packs. We don't really go anywhere alone without checking in with each other most people i know if they're going on a blind date they meet people in public they tell their friends where they're going you know we check in with each other because it's kind of scary to be a woman so that was one of the things that i i i guess i i i it's not like a deal-breaking, like, oh my god i, I got this is completely unrealistic or it complete it, it did it 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 didn't completely remove me from the immersion, but I, it was just like, huh, like, I, you know, I was like, um, like, it was one, yeah, it's like, yeah, no way would, you know, you know, women, you know, walk alone, you know, late at night uh, by themselves, you know, they always have, I mean, it, it's, 
it really sucks that that's the type of society we live in, but I, I feel like I'm an asshole for saying this. It, I, I, I feel, I hate to say that it, it, it is what it is at the, at, at the time, but like, it, that's the truth. Like, right, I mean, I mean society's not going to change overnight. But I think that that's also important to look at from the 1980 version to the 2012 version is that it still hasn't changed. There's, it's still a very real thing. I mean, 2012 wasn't that long. I mean, it was long ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And even when I was in college, I walked across the campus at night by myself in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. I didn't have a car. I can't tell you the amount of times some rando pulled over in his car and tried to get me to get in. Now, that's not going to happen. But if he was any more of a douche, there was nothing stopping that person from getting out of that car and pulling me in if he wanted me to get in there, if he really wanted me to get in that car. Yeah. I feel like in 2020, if they remade this, the only difference would be you would have uh, apps on your on your phone to check in with your friends. You and 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 there are again, there are ways that people can get around that people get smarter and they adapt. So you could very easily adapt that for 2020. It, it would definitely not be a mainstream release. I feel. I mean, similar to 2012, this would be like a kind of like a limited quiet hot art house kind of vibe where um you know something that's like you know something that's like direct to video or or has or something that has limited to like 80 screens you know like call out of space but the 1980 version i think what i what i enjoyed about it was its simplicity um I, again i mean a lot of that has to do with the shoestring budget um but i think i mean there's nothing wrong with having like a fairly simple straightforward story I, it's about a very troubled man named frank zito uh who has serious serious freudian Oedipal complex mommy issues and he's projecting it onto other women uh isolating them and killing them um in like um somewhat real uh well it, yeah in a ritualistic manner and it goes through a day in the life and his mental and social de degradation and the way they execute it is like um ingenious i i would say like the frank zito he gives the or i'm sorry uh, joe spinelli gives frank like a lot of personality even with not that much to work with like frank like in general frank doesn't speak that much um like you see a lot of his character through the way he carries himself his body movements uh, like he plays like his breathing and his moaning and his growling um, like an instrument, and he's there's also there's also this dichotomy at play where he's both beast, he's both the predator, especially the growling noises he makes or um, the way that he like stalks his victims, um, and then at the same time, it, like he's just not he he's not just a straight up 
deranged killer. He's they gave him they gave him death, and uh, I wanted. To, that's why I was curious about asking you where this movie fell into the timeline because I, I don't know how many other horror movies or slasher movies at this time like really gave the antagonist this amount of like intimate empathic or, or i guess maybe not empathic but maybe or they, they at least try to illustrate where his mindset is um and so you see all this and this is a person of produced tra- trauma over a course of like an entire lifetime uh he clearly has some issues he's clearly not just a monster for the sake of being a monster like he was made to be a monster and like um and that to me just you know you know again liberal arts brain like i found that insanely fascinating like i found it really interesting to pick apart and analyze him as a character um and when we fast track to the 2012 version it's very faithful to the original it's done uh, it's produced by a or, you know, fan favorite on the show, Alexandra Aja, who, and I feel like we reviewed, like, his for- films more than any other person on this podcast. We, like, um, and he brings, like, this, this, um, this, such this, this art house vibe, this very, really, really interesting way of looking and perceiving things, like, um, you know, so, yes, like, a lot of, the storylines is roughly, like, one-to-one, uh, they make some v- minor narrative choices like uh, switching the setting from New York City to LA. Um, I would say the Maniac 2012 version is Maniac t- 1980 meets Drive. It has like this insanely 80s Miami Vice. Uh, synth wave kind of feel like in the music and like the neon lights and how like the stark contrasting colors uh it's really cool it's really interesting to look at uh and what i really like they 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 honored the original but they just elevated like the original source material and they show you something genuinely new and fascinating like so i mean obviously like one of the biggest things they did was they take the first segment from the 1980 Maniac where the kills are in POV and like 80% of the 2012 version is in POV. Um, so like the sheer amount of technical prowess that you need and, 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 and how that POV affects the story as well is insane. And it's like that's such a complicated gamble to take. And it's so brave, and uh, it just they, they just nailed it. And of course, you have a, an amazing cast like Elijah Wood, su- like such a crazy uh, performance from him. Like truly shocking, truly truly riveting. Um, and 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 it twenty twelve was firing on all cylinders. And uh, again, like twenty twelve. Um, it's an excellent movie, uh, but I don't think it. I don't think it, it was made out of passion and, and appreciation. But I don't think it was made to outshine the 1980s version. Like the 1980s version has its own distinct charm, um, and I feel like it's really unfair to compare the two. Uh, I think the I, I 
can't say one is better than the other, but I love them both equally. Yeah. I I pit them up against each other because it is a remake. Um, but the upgrades that they made to the 2012 version, I think, improve it for the time that it's taking place. I don't think that any of it occurs to its to the film's detriment. I think it all makes it flow and work a little bit more seamlessly the same way you watch the 1980 version work for when it's being made. You watch the 2012 one work for when it was being made. And even though both films depict um, someone who is clearly unwell and brutal violence against women, they're still really, really good slasher movies. And... I think a lot of it does have to do with the with the effects that were done in, in both films. But I also think that what what helps is that Aja stayed so close to the original. And it wasn't like a shot-by-shot remake, which would have been a little annoying. But the he duplicated scenes from the original and matched it to the whole tone of the 2012 movie. And I think it was it was just done so well. And that's why I think that, I'll repeat myself again, I think that this definitely stands up to be one of the most positive and successful remakes that I, in horror movies that I've seen. And I don't know, I guess it was just also sort of appealing to me that they didn't make it any longer than it really needed to be. They stuck so close to the original timing of the first one. And I think that that also really helped. I think sometimes... When you and I get together and we talk about movies, uh, whether it's a remake or, or um, and just a film that we're just watching for an episode, some of our biggest gripes are the length of the movies where you and I talk about how you could cut out an entire half an hour of a movie and it would be much better. I agree. 2012 was really tight. Um, and, 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 a, I mean, and, and in a lot of ways, like um, the... 2012 streamlined the movie or it, it made it made more cohesive sense in terms of like like the narrative timeline and i feel like 2012 in some aspects like it ex- clarified or it illustrated the 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 trauma um that frank was going through in better ways um I mean, I mean, obviously, like uh, Joe Spinelli and his performance. You, um, I felt it was a, a little bit rough around the edges, but you got you got like the broad strokes. Like, like you, at this ending of the day, he was still a child of abuse. Uh, he was still, um, he went through this insane psychosexual crisis where he's torn between loving his mother and hating her. Because she's a prostitute, and uh, and the abuse and the neglect, um, and like the sheer like like emotional distress that comes with um, living in like a weird turbulent environment like that, um, and you see that uh, you see that uh, in spades with Elijah Wood, uh, but uh, you just you see it illustrated in a different way like so in the 1980 version uh, a lot of you white a lot of what you see is um joe spinelli as frank talking to himself but like talking as different people or um he's like 
he's acting as the voice of the mother uh, at the same time. Very like Norman Bates. Exactly. And while in uh, 2012, uh, just by the benefit of like, you know, 30 something years later of cinema t- uh, innovation technology, um, you have... You have Elijah Wood going through these fugue states where he's actually envisioning and seeing like the 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 this these bouts of trauma replay in his mind. Like a lot of the film is in his per- point of view, and you never see Elijah Wood except in like reflections or when he's uh, dissociating from himself. And when you a lot of t- and you. You see these visual cues like like a lot of times when you see Elijah Wood like dissociate from himself or he sees um, himself in like the second or third person is when there's like a traumatic when he's reliving something traumatic like like reliving when he was a boy hiding in the closet and watching his mom like engage in a threesome you know um, or um, or or watching her uh, having sex with a stranger in the middle of the street. Um, and it's still getting the same point across, but they're two different ways of of illustrating. And you know, on a macro level, the twenty twelve just retells the same story with a like a, a tiny, tiny bits of of rearranging, uh, but explaining it in a, like a brand new, brand new synthesis of sounds and POVs and shots, and um, and it just makes for like. It is the same plot, but it felt like a wholly different movie, but still familiar at the same time. And it was it was awesome. It was great. That that's why I think it's also just super successful. I think that that's what makes it. I think that if you're going to remake a movie and you want to remake it with the love and care that it deserves, and still be kind and true to the roots and the original as to where it came from, then take notes from the way Maniac was done. And I think, I think one of the biggest things like, yes, like 2012 wanted to the original, but, um, you know, I think this is where like the art house, RZ vibes comes in. Like it's, it was brave to be original, like reading up on how much technical work, like Elijah Wood did with the the DP, the director of photography, is insane. Like, uh, basically, like um, this is not normal at all for like for filming. But uh, Elijah Wood was on production or on set for like every single day in like like the 40, 50 days of filming they were doing this film, and like he was he, the sh- he was shadowing the DP or the DP was shadowing him the entire time. Um, and, um, they were explaining how, um, the role of Frank was truly collaborative. It was just as much Elijah's input as it was the DP, as it was the director. Like, uh, and in a way, like Elijah Wood had a lot more freedom to like feel the character and to experiment. And, um, I thought that was just like a really really interesting symbiotic relationship that I feel like you don't really see uh, as often, or at least to the degree of intimacy and commingledness that you see uh, here. And th- that just created like this 
awe-inspiring performance. He also got to make choices. Um, so Maniac is done from the killer's perspective. And during the opening scene, before the title card comes up, the very first kill of the movie, Elijah Wood had to make a choice. It's two different sets of hands that are going on in that scene. There's one scene that stabs her through the the chin. Oh my god. I, I jumped at the scene. I was like, holy shit. I was like, that... Because it was seamless. <laughs> yeah. It was fucking good. Yeah. And then there's the other hand that's sort of caressing her and then scalping her at the same time. Um, the way they did the scalping effect, uh, the, the makeup artist was like, we sort of want her to do it herself. Um, by her falling, it's sort of, that's how it happens. He's not physically doing it. So I thought that was really cool. Um, but Elijah Wood in that scene had to make a choice. He could either be the hand that stabbed her, or he could be the hand that sort of did the caressing and the scalping. And Elijah Wood made the active decision to be the left hand, the hand that is caressing her and calling her beautiful and saying, no, please don't scream, and, and, then, and then holding her and, and scalping her. And he has such a hand in all of this, and I, I love watching... Uh, some of the interviews with him where he was talking about how he went through this movie and the process of him like playing Frank as a character and how it was for him to do all of these like killing scenes and one thing that really stuck out to me was he was like look like I know I'm making a movie and it's it's real but it sort of doesn't it doesn't feel real because you're sort of aware of everything that's happening. So anytime, any any of those scenes, he said that he was totally fine with it because he was just very aware of what was happening. The one scene in the movie that made him really uncomfortable to film, that he was like, no, this was just too much for me, was the bathtub. Uh, Where he yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. there was something about, oh, I know she's holding her breath and I know she's acting, but there was something about that act that he was like, no. And there's a quick clip of him saying, like, oh, my God, that was so good. Are you okay? But that was so good. Like, are you good? And just the constantly – and she was fine. But there's – and watching that translate uh, to, from an actor, I was just like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, shit's you're intense. Totally not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, shit's fucking intense, man. Uh, the uh... – Related to that, like, just the amount of, like, coordination and trust that you need with each other is insane. Like, so one of the things I've found really fascinating is, like, um, you know, based on how they had to shoot the the film, like, again, 80% POV, you had, like, a massive rig falling around uh, Elijah Wood. Um, and you know, they, they masked like the cameras and the equipment so well with like clever use of mirrors and angles. Um, but one thing, one thing that I, I was found really interesting was, um, uh, not all the shots with Frank's hands are actually Eliza's hands. Sometimes, uh, one of the hands is Elijah's and one of the hands like, is like a stunt double, uh, or like the DP's hand. Uh, and, um, uh, and like the fact that you know they had to literally choreograph some something as simple as moving your hands, you know, like around your 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 face, takes an incredible degree of like trust and practice and and like empathy and just like just vibe on the the same wavelength. And I found that super fascinating. Um, 
it's just wow. It's like that's I guess when when you spend like like fifty days together, you know, after the fifty days, I'm sure you you're just like I can we can mirror each other's movements like twins. Um, so that was a really cool. That was one of the most fascinating pieces of trivia I was reading about about the behind the scenes for 2012. Like it's just ingenious. Oh yeah. So earlier you mentioned that you were sort of likening the 1980 version uh, and Joe and Frank as a as a killer to um, how his behavior and his mo and and the way everything was done was uh, sort of mirroring. Uh, real life serial killers of the time, like son of Sam and, and, and everything. And there was something, it was a podcast I was listening to today that was talking about the golden state killer, AKA the original night stalker, East area rapist, Joseph D'Angelo, son of a bitch. I was listening to an episode of a podcast today and they were uh, talking about audio from the courtroom and they played it. And I was listening to his voice and there was something about that that clicked where I was like, that sounds like Frank from Maniac from 1980. That sing-song whisper that can immediately just turn to this rage and, and just turn on a dime. But also, he was known to terrorize his victims after the fact by leaving them phone calls of him just breathing. And... I was listening, I was listening to this episode, I was listening to all of that, and I was like, wow, fuck, they really, like, they really went in there. And then there's also a whole slew of serial killers who part of their uh, MO and Golden State included was to lay a woman down on her stomach the way you saw in the 2012 remake with her hands behind her back and the whole nine. And I just think, intentional or not, there are so many nods to... The real life horror, this is going back to, um, you know, real life shit. There are so, there's so much of that that sort of echoes the real life serial killers of our history that created unsafe environments for, for people, not just women, mostly women, but people in general. Yeah, I mean, yeah, going back to uh, the 2012 version, you know, uh, I got a chuckle out of this, but um, it was when... Um, Frank went on a a uh, a e date blind date uh, with one of the first girls. Uh, what's her name? Ruthie. Lucy. Lucy. Yeah. Uh, and then Lucy starts playing Goodbye Horses. I chuckled so. <laughs> I, I just, you know what? I didn't chuckle. I straight up laughed. I was like, "Oh, you've got to be fucking kidding me!" I love it. Yeah. It, it, in a movie about Buffalo Bill, which is like, you know, uh, took a lot of inspiration from like uh, Ed Gein and um, well, who was the other? Oh, God. Ted Bundy? I mean, Bundy murdered co-eds. This is not a true crime podcast. I just I just enjoy it. Yeah, I'm just I'm just blanking. Like, I, I know like Buffalo Bill was a synthesis of, um, you know, a couple real life serial killers. I mean, Leatherface was also sort of based off of uh, Ed Gein as well. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, taking trophies uh, in the form of human flesh out of, you know, poor victims. So it's 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 funny that you mentioned that, um, especially in terms of Ed Gein. Tom Savini, when he was talking about um, his whole process 
going into what they should do special effects wise for um, the 1980 movie, uh, a lot of the stuff that you see was not in the original script. It was sort of done as in this brainstorm session, like, what can they do? And uh, the guy that plays Frank, who wrote the movie, who like wrote the story that the movie was based off of, um, wanted, and I'm going to quote Tom Savini here. Oh, this made me uncomfortable to write this down, just so we know. Uh, he wanted to bite stuff off in the nether regions and tom savini was like no we can't we can't do that we can't do that i wouldn't even know how to do that but we can't do that i'm yeah. not i'm not you know we can't do that to a woman please and thank you let's not go there right exactly and 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 the 2012 version really it's it does push another another envelope uh in terms of of the amount of gore that they see, because they don't just scalp people in this movie like the original. There, There's uh, another level of violence that occurs. And again, I really don't think that it takes away from from the original. I think it just, it, it sort of adds something to this uh, different version of, of Maniac that you're watching. I have no complaints about either one of them. I still enjoy the absolute shit out of, out of both of them, despite the lens that you're sort of forced to watch it through watching it now. Yeah. I mean, again, we, we both enjoy this movie, but we, or these pair movies, but we understand that we can, we can, I guess not dissociate ourselves, but at least acknowledge and empathize. Like, you know, there are some real world stuff that, that like, you know, that's really, or that's still problematic, still, it's just like emblematic of the weird times and unfortunate times that we live in and the fact that stuff hasn't changed but even 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 beyond that i mean it's it's still these are still great movies um um and i i would say like it, this movie's not for everyone or both movies aren't for everyone obviously if you have a low threshold for violence, don't watch this movie. Don't watch either one of them, especially the 20. Don't watch either one of them. There is no especially in this case. Just don't watch either one of them because, uh, yeah, it's it's brutal. And I'm not ashamed to say I enjoy it. I can, Like Chris said, we can still sit here and acknowledge the terrible imagery and, and, and relate it to the now times and and every time in between um but yeah as in terms of horror movies this is fucking quality yes yes um uh you know high high praise for both um so i had i didn't i this is not a criticism of the 2012 version it's just like a curious observation so in the 1980 version uh you technically had a final girl she uh i mean uh anna uh she slashed frank in the arm with a shovel and she ran away from the graveyard and we never see her again but presumably she called the cops because they break they break into his uh residence at the end of the film um now you also have anna in the 2012 version and this shocked me anna doesn't make it anna dies at the end um and uh, I was like, I was really shocked because like I really, really liked the Anna 2012 version. Um, uh, I think she had a lot 
more character development than the 1980 version. Um, I think uh, obviously, like if she had to die, um, uh, it just made the endings that much more tragic. Um, which, uh, I mean, this is a horror film, this is a slasher film, so tragedy is going to be, you know, in spades. Um, but I was, um, you know, especially with the the third act where Anna, uh, she refused to be a victim. She was like, she did, she did some serious damage to to uh, Frank, like just you know, with a knife and. Um, and I was ex- fully expecting her to to make it out alive, uh, like in the '80s film. Um, and I and I guess this is not so much me judging on the merits of the film, but just my 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 emotions. Like I really enjoyed her character. I loved her actress Nora uh, Evazender, and I really wanted her to be the final girl. I really wanted to make it out because. Um, she was so sweet, and and yeah, uh, but I mean, this is a horror movie, so there's no happy endings. But I, th- I mean, that was just like a a, um, a curious observation. Like, I was legit surprised that Anna didn't make it out in the end in the 2012 version. So, Ry, what what do you think about that? I love both of them for for that reason. And and here's and again, I'm gonna relate this to true crime because this is about a serial killer. So I think that they both show the potential outcomes for survivors and and victims. There are people that get away and are forever scarred and changed, as I'm sure undoubtedly happens to the main girl in in the original one. Who, by the way, who, by the way, was the only, like, actual actress in that movie. The rest of the girls were all porn actresses. Yeah, 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 actually. Uh, so, yeah. Woo-hoo! Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and it's interesting, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, it's interesting because, like, uh, Anna from 2012 even makes, like, I think maybe, like, a self-aware comment about that. Like, after they leave the cabin of Caligari, um, Frank or Elijah Wood was saying, oh, at least she survived it and happy she survived. And then Anna makes a quip, well, yeah, she survived, but she's going to be in you know, going to mental hospitals for the rest of her life. It's like, oh, I like, and I was like, wow, okay, that's pretty self-aware uh, and pretty, I thought that was like uh, breaking the fourth wall kind of, um, like I was expecting like uh, uh, 2012 Anna to survive, but we see her like end up in the mental hospital as well. Maybe she's hallucinating about Frank, but um, I'm, a, I'm still like happy or I'm, I'm still sad, okay. I'm I'm not happy that she died, but I'm satisfied with the ending because because it was it was faithfully original. It was really haunting and shocking, and just as strange and bizarre as the original. Anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. I think to... no, yeah. So and but and then there was the other outcome though, the one that like doesn't make it and gets brutally killed, whether in a in a happenstance accident like that one. Which we've seen in Devil's Rejects, that actually happens. This poor girl, like, escapes this traumatic experience only to run into a road and get hit by a truck. Like, it's it's very that. So it was either she was going to die at Frank's hands, which was going to happen anyway, or, you know. So it's the two, it's the two outcomes. It's the, it's the tragic end or the survival, but you're scarred forever. 
So I just, I, they both have very different outcomes, but they both work. I want her to live, damn it. <laughs> no, it was never going to happen. I know. <laughs> it's never going to happen. I know. If they lived in the original, they're not going to live in the remake. They're all going to die. <laughs> and I'm okay. I'm really okay with it. I don't know. That's just me being emotional and not judging <laughs> on, no, no, on no, I get academic it. and paragla- uh, uh merits. But I mean, that final, that final scene, like, uh, you know, redone with modern practical effects, like, oh, it was so cool. Uh, just like, just when Elijah was just fully losing it, having his face ripped away and like, there's like a mannequin face underneath like Elijah's real face. Like it was so cool. That fucked with me. I thought that was so cool. That fucked with me. Cause, cause the original, it's all the mannequins come to life and, and they rip his head off. And that is something beautiful to watch. But this was unnerving and just such, like, a happy uh, surprise at the end. Like, I loved the first time I saw it. It fucking made me jump. I was like, holy shit, you went there. That is awesome. And it was just, like, the perfect cherry on top of all of that. Again, small twist, but, like, it just on, on the original. But it's like, wow, that's really new. That's just as freaky. Uh, we seen we seen all the mannequins come to life and like rip them apart, but like so we were expecting that, but like just that one tiny twist, like that was really cool. Oh, and I forgot because I'm terrible at this. The just really quick, even though we've already talked about the movie, the synopsis for the 2012 movie was a serial killer removes his victim scalps and attaches them to his vintage mannequins he restores in his late mother's shop. Which is really just like a D-plot in the whole movie. They kept the mannequin element, which was fantastic. And it gives you like a plausible reason why he like collects like all these mannequins. It's not just like a fetish. It's it. He has a practical reason for it. So I want to I wanna dive into really quick the practical effects that were used in in both films and i say this because i'm a huge fan of of tom savini and batten and greg nicotero and and all those guys i think they're incredible i think they've paved the way for so many young special effects artists that are up and coming and have watched their work over the years and and just so much good shit has come from from their brains however watching tom savini talk about the effects he did in such like a cool nonchalant way i don't see it as egotistical for him he just he was just so aware of what he could do that he just made it seem so easy and you were just like yeah, like, I want to do this. And it, like, it, it gets you excited. Watching, this is going to sound so shitty, but watching the guy who does the special effects for the 2012 one, Mike McCarty, even though Greg Nicotero was on set and he knows Tom Savini very well, so I'm sure he was there and, like, helped, and, like, helped him along the way. Like, well, this is, you know, and, that, and that's fine. But there was a comment that this guy made that just sounded so pretentious and so f- fucking like I I like I rolled and I was like, really, dude, you sound like a douche. And it was about the scalping. 
um, aspect of, of the film. And Tom Savini was just like, yeah, I, I knew he had like one makeup kit. And he was like, yeah, I knew how to do that. It was just a question of like soaping her hair, putting some latex, uh, putting a latex piece using some like wax or whatever. And then the effect was there. And, and he was just very like casual about the whole thing. He was like, yeah, most of the stuff that we did for that movie just came out of a kit that I had. And I was like, fuck, man, like that is awesome and old school and really like shows you the nitty gritty. I also have a fun fact about his head, but we'll get to that in a second. Oh, I think I know. Um, it, yeah. Oh, my God. Like obsessed. But then you have Mike McCarty and he's like, well, you know, of you know, we're giving more gore to the audience and of all the things that we do in this film, the scalping was the uh, was the most most complex, and I was like, "What?" Hmm. And he just sounded really pretentious. He was like, "Well, we wanted to have this element and this element, so you know, we put like a whole foam piece, and then we had uh, all of these hair people like lay down hair, and like he made like this whole thing out of it." And I was like, "Dude, you sound like a douche. Like it's like don't make a big like Megillah out of it, like." There was just something about the way he said it just, like, really rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe I'm also just, like, a diehard Tom Savini, just, like, supporter. So for me to, like, go from that interview to the behind the scenes of Maniac 2012, I was like, fuck you, man. Like, no. Well, I mean, I will say, like, I mean, the... the I mean, the the scalping in 2012 it looks realistic. It looks real. I know, but it looks pretty uh, fucking real but... in 1980, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's the same thing. Yeah, I was saying, but like nineteen eighty, like thirty years ago, it looks pretty damn convincing too. If anything, I feel like more more of the credit in terms of like the the effects should go to like the, the director of photography, if anything else, because like that's just like a more comprehensive um, vision that was put together. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, like the the special effects like the the makeup and like the the scalps like they accentuated but i think you know the, the dp is like the unsung hero of 2012 because it's just such a unique vision between like the pov or like the cool miami vice retro drive muted color uh like color palette and like uh, and like this, uh, I, I think that is more impressive than anything else. I just, there was something about the way he was describing the effects that they had in the film that just like kind of pissed me off. He was like, well, scalping's nothing compared to the rest of the stuff that we have in this movie, but it was by far the most complicated thing we did. And I'm sitting there going to myself, Tom Savini did it with a bunch of liquid latex. Like, what do you mean it's the most complicated shit you did in this movie? I don't want to... Constructing and executing the shots of the of each scalping, 100%. I will give him that, but that's not what he said. So there was just something about the way he phrased it that just really, like, rubbed me the wrong way. And I was like, you sound like a pretentious asshole. Like, shut the <laughs> fuck up. Eat some humility for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and be done with it. Like, shut up. I, I, I just got, like, I was very upset over the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, in your favor, I mean, uh, Maniac 2012 is a very art housey film. So it I is. Can, so, so maybe that's where the pretentiousness is coming from. Fine, but still. <laughs> so, okay. So let, let's, let's talk. I, I, I need a, it's fine. It's fine. Is it so, fine? 
It's fine. So, <laughs> well, you're mad about the practical effects. I am mad about Anna dying. We all get, we all get, we all get our grievances. <laughs> I'm just mad at the pretentiousness of of some practical effects humans. I just, you know, I just, I love listening to how just like calm and collected Tom Savini is in interviews. Like he was talking about Maniac in the drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs. And Joe Bob like sat there with him and he, he, sh- he repeated the same thing. He was just sort of like, yeah, it was whatever. And he just, he was like, I just, I took, Tom Savini was known for making some of the most realistic and grotesque practical effects with everyday items. And it's what makes practical effects like so spectacular when you watch them on, on film. And it's why I think Chris and I just like live and die by practical effects because like, look what he did. And here's an example from Maniac. It's one of my favorite things about this. It's one of my, like, my favorite facts about this movie. So Tom Savini's scene in Maniac was not in the original script. He had a mask that, of his own face that he had in the trunk of his car that he brought that he brought with him, like, with his kit to New York while they were discussing the film. And because he had that, he was like, let's just blow me up. Let's blow my head up. And they were like, hell yeah, let's do it. And he created the rest of it with latex and stuffed it with food from the craft services table. So there's everything from like shrimp cocktail to like everything that he could find and like blood-filled condoms and everything was just stuffed into this head, like chicken wire bust head of him. And they shot, they shot him through the window, and he blew up. F- fun fact, they used live ammunition for that, and then they had another car with an engine idling, and they were, they were, I mean, they, they were filming, like, guerrilla style because they couldn't get permits. Yes. So, so when they were filming that scene, they fired the live ammo, and they threw the car... Uh, they, th- they threw the gun into the car that was waiting and the other car like sped off before like... It was an off-duty cop. Oh, was it? <laughs> so they had an off-duty cop that was there on site to take the shotgun. Because, okay, so Tom Savini explains this. There's apparently this law called the Sullivan Law in New York City where you can't shoot a gun. <laughs> uh, if you live in New York City, yeah. like, hello. <laughs> um, like, if you, shoot, if you shoot a gun and you get caught, it's like a five-year minimum. Okay. Fine. So they had an off-duty cop sit at... Why did I sound Why did I sound like I was from Boston the way I said that? That was weird. <laughs> there was an off-duty cop that was sitting, uh, uh, like, obviously off-screen. So they shot the shotgun. The shotgun went to the off-duty cop. Off-duty cop speeds away. And then Tom Savini was put in another car and gone while they cleaned everything up. So they brought that car back to shoot the other half of that scene, which is the actress he was in the car with getting shot with blood. However, because of everything that they used to stuff his bust with, it stank in the car. Ew. So they used another car for that shot, but that car from the original shot is in the river. (laughs) So somewhere, (laughs) someone's going to find Tom Savini's head and a chicken wire body and like watching him tell this story is just like the most amazing thing ever i could sit there and just like watch him tell this that's pretty great yeah it's pretty awesome so some that car is gonna get found one day by someone and go what the fuck (laughs) 
No such story will come out of the 2012 movie. However, they did this masterful thing where they combined, and I think it's the best of both worlds, they combined practical effects and digital effects. And what I mean by that is a lot of the gore aspects of it were done practically, but were added digitally into the film. So they would go into like a green, like a room and just film some of the most brutal uh, acts of the movie and then digitally add them in. And I think that that really, truly combines the best of both worlds when it comes to the world of horror. Not everything has to be digital and CGI. Not everything has to be practical, but it should. This was in 2012 and it was seamless. That backstabbing scene where Elijah Wood goes after her and sits on top of him and stabs her in the back, that was done both practically and digitally. And it's it so, was, you can't it's tell. It's so good. Yes. It's so good. Yeah, exactly. So take fucking notes. You can do both. There's not, like, I get so upset when I find out that not everything or not anything was done practically because there's just, there's a way to do it and it looks good. True facts. I give both of them five out of five scalped heads. Uh, I'll give it six out of five mannequins. Yeah, because it was just... I'm so happy that you liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was very nervous. Because after I sat there and I started watching the 1980 version, I was like, fuck, it's another serial killer. Shit, I forgot. <laughs> well, well, it's, again, like, my my metric is really inconsistent. It's not reliable. Um... I mean, I was texting you when I was fin- while I was watching like the 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 first film. I was like, I finished the first film. It was simple, but I really enjoyed it. It was it was schlocky and like yeah, overall like you know good initial impressions. And then when I finished the 2012 version earlier tonight, I texted you. I was like, holy shit, this movie's awesome. So <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's maybe we should we should revisit. Maybe we should revisit Poughkeepsie tapes. I don't know. Maybe my brain is a weird space. Um, I mean, I mean, I guess, I guess, out of continuum, like I feel like, I feel like this is worse. Well, according to you, it's worse than Poughkeepsie tapes. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's as bad as Terrifier, or um, so. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why my brain is. I don't know. We'll find. We'll find a sweet spot for Chris. Yeah, I don't know. More of the story. I really enjoyed both of these films. Yay! Okay, I'm so good. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Okay, <laughs> I lost the outro. Hold up. <laughs> I won't forget my name this time. Hi, I'm Chris, <laughs> and this was Rai, <laughs> and this is the end of Left for Dread. On that, I'm leaving this in. On that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. So uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we hope you enjoyed the, these films as much as we did, especially me, because, like, again, first timer. Um, so, yeah, this, 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 this is one of the few times where remakes can be good. Yay! Right, exactly. <laughs> Woo! Yay! So, so again, thanks for listening, and don't forget, stay dreadful. Stay dreadful.